Can I say one thing about what's going on here? Today is JD's one-year anniversary at the Chronicle. So, happy anniversary, JD. Thank you. He's, he's written approximately 5,000 stories in his first year, so maybe step it up next year. All right, I'm Damian Bulwa, Metro Editor at the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome back. This is part two of our live podcast on the wildfire season. I am joined by J.D. Morris, who covers PG&E and energy for us, and Curtis Alexander, who covers a lot of things, all mostly based around the environment, water, wildfire, the California, California and the West. And um, we're going to be talking about what's just happened mostly with the shutoffs and the wildfires. I wanted to ask everyone here, how many people lost their power in the last month? Just a few. A lot of San Francisco residents. Okay. All right. So, let's, JD, let's start with you. Uh, why are we as California residents now weighing whether to lose our power or suffer higher wildfire risk? What put us in this position, and how long can we expect it to go on? The fires are getting worse. Many of them, many of the worst ones, have been caused by PG&E power lines and climate change, um, to put it simply. Climate change, um, as a lot of folks may or may not know, um, you know, contributed to this epic drought that we had. It's increasing the temperatures. It's making it so that if and when there is a spark, a wildfire can burn um, much worse and be far more destructive than it would be otherwise. And a lot of these really horrible fires that we've had in the last couple of years, including uh, many of the fires in 2017 up in wine country and the campfire last year, which was the deadliest and most destructive fire in state history, was caused by PG&E. PG&E is now scrambling to make its infrastructure uh, more resilient to kind of uh, be able to withstand these much worse conditions that we're all living in now. But it's clear that the grid in California as it stands now is just not, it's a older grid that's not built to withstand the harsh realities of um, what we're now experiencing. So until it can be in a position where it, um, you know, can withstand these higher temperatures and these more severe fire conditions, PG&E has decided to start turning off the power when it's really dry, when we haven't had a lot of rain, and when these really intense winds come in that makes it so that power lines could get knocked down or a, like, heavy-duty transmission tower, um, transmission line could break and start a horrible wildfire. But it's a very controversial decision because... I think a lot of people understandably feel like that's a false choice that they shouldn't have to be faced with. Yeah, I, one thing to kind of let you in on what's been going on in our newsroom lately is we've noticed that during this last month, people are craving a lot of what we call utility stories. When is my power going to come back on? What do I need to know? And so in addition, we, we, we love to do a lot of storytelling, tell the stories of people who lost their homes, uh, tell the stories of uh, firefighters. But we've noticed that a, a lot of people are craving stories just about 
you know, why is my street out of power? And so my next question for you, JD, is we, we've gotten a lot of questions from people when their power is shut off. Why is mine off? There's no wind in my neighborhood or the person across the street has power or the lines are undergrounded in my neighborhood. Um, have you been getting a lot of these questions too? Oh, all the time, all the time. And, and it has a lot to do with the way that the grid is built and the fact that PG&E is willing to turn off so much of it now. It'll, they'll turn off any power line um, if they're worried about wildfire risk. And when you're thinking about, in particular, these heavy-duty, high-voltage transmission lines, a lot of those run in places, you know, on mountaintops and through, uh, you know, the remote areas in Butte County in the Sierra Nevada. Um, and what those power lines do is they take electricity from where it's generated and they carry it across really far distances to a lot of people. And when you turn that off, I've said this repeatedly, but I, it's the best analogy I can think of. It's like shutting down a freeway. If you close down enough interstates, traffic can't get into any of the cities and electricity is the same way. Um, so if they turn off one of these power lines that, you know, uh, blocks off the access for the other power lines, then you just, you don't get power even if you're down below because they've turned off um, a line in a high fire threat area. So, and, and yet during the shutoffs though, we have fires that are being investigated as PG&E caused fires. Right. And that really gets to the heart of why this is all one big mess right now. Um, and California is uh, really going where no state has gone before. Um, you're exactly right. The Kincaid fire that started, um, when was that, last month uh, in northern Sonoma County up by Geyserville, that may very well have been started by a high voltage PG&E transmission line because even though I just said, yeah, when they turn off power lines running through high fire threat areas, it can have a cascading effect downstream. They also don't like to turn off, I think, these real, the highest voltage power lines. And those power lines have um, higher thresholds, they say, for when they turn them off because they're worried about a different problem. So a lower wind speed is going to carry a higher risk for like knocking a tree branch down that will knock over, you know, a wooden power pole and a distribution line. And that's how a lot of those wine country fires started. But the heavy duty transmission towers are not, they're not wooden poles. They're those big steel lattice structures, right? So it takes a lot more wind in order to break those and cause a problem. Um, so that's kind of like the tricky science that they're thinking about is like, what are we worried about here? Are we worried about a branch falling on a line, or are we worried about one of these big heavy-duty towers breaking in the wind? So they said that their equipment by where the Kincaid fire started, that they claim the weather did not meet the threshold to turn that off, um, but then one of those lines malfunctioned right before the fire started. All right, so let's come back to PG&E, and it looks like we have possibly a PG&E question or two. Uh, thank everyone. But Curtis, going over to you now, Curtis, um, is a former Forest Service uh, ranger, correct? Yeah, Park Service ranger, Park and Service I, did a, ranger. I did a little bit of seasonal work for the U.S. Forest Service as well. Okay, so Curtis is the person in the newsroom that we all go to when we want to understand how California works. The, <laughs> the rivers, the dams, the delta, you know, the big questions about California. So, um, I'm sure everyone has seen the stories recently about California, how we should all move out of here. It's, it's Armageddon, um, it's unlivable, etc. Fires are burning. Curtis, <laughs> um, you've seen these stories. They seem a little bit 
Yeah, a lot hyperbolic. of people, especially in the national media, are saying that it's the end of the world in California and we've lost our paradise as they watch on TV, the flames damaging homes and communities. But, you know, I think that uh, people are just a little jealous of us and they like to hate on California. <laughs> um, we've got great weather, we've got great people, diversity, beautiful landscapes, jobs, uh, strong economy. So when something goes wrong here, I think people outside the state just like to dig it in. And it's not like the rest of the country doesn't have problems, too. You have hurricanes in the southeast, and you have blizzards in the northeast, and you have drought in the southwest. So, you know, pick your natural disaster. Yeah, some places have to import California pot. <laughs> That's true. I will say, though, that I mean, we do have serious problems here, and the fires are getting worse, and that is a big deal. What I think maybe gets lost in a lot of the hysteria in the national media, though, is, I mean, this isn't just our problem. This is climate change arriving on our doorstep. It's going to come for everybody else eventually. And if we're not equipped to handle it, if our electric service can't withstand climate change, I mean, what does that mean for... The rest of the country when you know the really severe effects arrive there um, so I think the hysteria overlooks that so Curtis let's dig in just a little bit into to some of the conditions that we're seeing first of all the the conditions we talk about with the winds the dry weather the these long extended fire seasons how much is that impacted by climate change and how do we even sort of study that yeah as uh you know as uh, JD was saying climate change is a huge driver when temperatures rise the landscape dries out and the hills and the valleys become more prone to burning. And also with higher temperatures, we see less snow in the Sierra and we see the melting of snow earlier in the season. So therefore California is a little bit drier at the end of, of the summer. We've seen these longer fire seasons here in the state, which have extended into fall and into winter. And that happens to overlap our windy season. As we know, we've got this strong offshore winds in the winter and sometimes early fall. They can blow 100 miles an hour. They're known as the Santa Ana's down south. They're called the, uh, they're called the uh, Delo uh, uh, excuse me, Diablo winds here. And when you have these winds happening when it's hot and dry later in the year, that's a recipe for disaster. And that's what we've seen with the 2017 wine country fires and the fire in paradise and even the Kincaid fire last month. Okay, got it. So, um, Curtis, one more policy question. Um, the President of the United States says that um, raking of the forests uh, <laughs> is badly needed in California, but it, it, it gets on a big issue, which is forest management. Um, you know, how much is forest management a part of this? I think most of you saw that tweet that uh, or I guess the comment that Donald Trump made about the need to rake our forests like they do in Finland. I, I think most of you saw that. And uh, it was good fodder for a lot of newspaper columnists and late night TV shows, et cetera. But I think there might have been a little bit of a point there, as you were saying. Um, I think what he was trying to say, and sometimes Donald Trump misses some of the nuance, but I think what he was trying to say is that there's a lot of fuels in our forests. We've had decades of fire suppression, and there's a lot of vegetation that's been, a lot of vegetation that has been built up. So now when a fire starts, it's going to burn hotter, it's going to burn faster, it has more chance of burning into homes and communities. And we certainly need to thin our forests and do more prescribed burns in order to, to try to get that fuel out. 
But I think, like I was saying, the president sometimes misses the nuance. A lot of our fires are not just burning in forests now, they're burning in grasslands and oak woodlands and chaparral. So um, there isn't really a fuel management problem there. And then the other issue is when you focus solely on forest management, you sort of downplay other issues like climate change and the problems with PG&E, which are also the source of a lot of these fires. Isn't a lot of the forest land in California managed by the federal government as well? Yeah, yeah, definitely. 57% is managed by the federal government, so most of it is. We'll be right back with more on the Chronicle's disaster coverage after this break. Let's get back to our live podcast recording about wildfires and power outages in California. All right, before we get to the, to the questions from the, the audience, one more sort of big picture question. Um, there's a lot of talk about cities like Paradise where Lizzie has spent a great deal of time. Shouldn't we abandon these cities is sort of the, the ultimate question. And of course, Paradise is being rebuilt. How, how does this question get answered in California for, for places like this? Well, it's hard to tell people they can't build on their property. I mean, um, we've got, what, 40 million people in the state, and um, just like in, uh, at the turn of the century, there are probably about 32 million. So even in the past two decades, we've seen 8 million more people, and they need some place to go. It's not like they can come to the Bay Area because it's not like we have a lot of housing here, and it's very expensive. And I think a lot of the people move to these more rural areas because it's not as crowded and it's not as expensive. So... There's no place for these people to go, really. I think what the state estimates is that there's about 3 million homes in high hazard areas, areas that are prone to burning, and about one in four people live in those areas. So it's not just paradise. Um, there's a lot of areas that might burn, and people live there. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's a very dicey proposition anytime you try to tell somebody that they can't build um, where they were living before. Um, I will say I grew up in the wildland urban interface in Monterey County, Prunedale area. Um, my family uh, lived there in Sonoma County up in Cloverdale. And um, I mean, Sonoma County in particular, yeah, it has a history of fire, but it didn't used to burn like it's burning now. I mean, these this heightened fire risk is is a new threat. You can't just evict people from, you know, like Curtis was saying, places where they often went because they couldn't afford to live anywhere else. Um, I think one thing that we may see more of going forward, though, is um, what's going to happen with the insurance. That's definitely something to watch. I think a lot of the insurance companies um, may may stop reinsuring those homes when they're rebuilt and insuring those areas, and they may be the ones to dictate whether or not people live there in the future. And then, of course, there's a whole other conversation that the state needs to be having about, um, you know, smart, uh, smart growth and defensible space and making communities more uh, resilient. All right. Are you ready for questions? Yeah. Bring sure. them on. Okay. What is your favorite mission burrito? <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> all right. Now, the first one is... Uh, what is the role of solar, rooftop solar, and these batteries, these, what do they call them, Tesla 
Power walls. Power walls and other companies have these uh, solar batteries in addressing the mass blackouts. Um, well, they can play a role if you have them. Um, if you have solar panels, you need to uh, you need to have something like a power wall or um, something else, some other kind of battery system. Because if you only have solar panels on your roof, those solar panels are still connected to the grid, and when the grid goes off, they you you can't get power. Um, so if you have solar plus storage and it's configured so that your home can run on its own, then yes, you will be. Uh, you can be isolated and keep the lights on when PG&E tries to turn them off. Um, however, those are very expensive, even with all of the you know different incentives that the state um, tries to put in place to encourage people to buy them. That's not going to work for everybody. That's not um, an equitable solution for all Californians. All right, now you're on the spot. Curtis, how does the tension between California and the Trump administration affect the on-site response to the fires? I don't think it's affected the direct response of firefighters. The U.S. Forest Service, who has about the same amount of firefighters in the state as CAL FIRE, which is the state's fire agency, they're still responding as quickly. And even though Donald Trump has threatened to withhold emergency funds like disaster aid, that's yet to happen. The, the emergency funds have been flowing in, and that's helped fund the firefighters as well. All right, JD, what should we do with PG&E? You have 10 seconds to answer this question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about what we should do. I mean, honestly, I don't think anybody does. A lot of people think that they have the best idea, but you can read a thousand and one um, counterpoints for each and every one of them. I think the state needs to be having a lot of serious conversations um, in the years ahead. Um, I, I do think that a lot of these seismic changes that people are talking about with PG&E, like turning it into a government-run utility or a cooperatively owned system like a credit union, um, those are that's going to be a, a really heavy lift if that's going to happen. And PG&E, the state passed a law that tries to get it out of bankruptcy by June 30th. Um, so it remains to be seen whether a change that big can happen on that kind of time frame. Doesn't mean it can't happen ever. Um, but in the meantime, the focus, um, and I, I think it is to a large extent, going to be on, uh, you know, improving the uh, grid itself, covering power lines, installing more resilient poles, burying them underground, um, you know, stepping up vegetation management, moving toward a model like they have down in San Diego, where the utility there um, has really sophisticated, like, weather modeling and stuff like that that helps them decide when and where to turn the power off, so making those kinds of investments. I was talking about how solar and storage is really expensive. I'm sure the state can do a lot more to make that cheaper for folks and um, you know, encourage that to be installed and address that problem. So um, it's a mix of like short-term fixes and long-term um, conversations that should be ongoing. All right, why didn't PG&E have a power shutoff plan in the past, um, and also, which governor should we blame for not taking care of this earlier? Oh boy, well that's, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little young to be answering the second question probably, <laughs> but um, I think uh, before, um, from what I've read, you know, there were, seemed to be a resistance to that because um, of 
it's a really extreme measure. I mean, turning off electricity is like turning off running water to a lot of people. And PG&E's service territory is 70,000 square miles. It's bigger than the state of Florida, and it includes, uh, you know, San Francisco and all of these redwood forests and things like that. Um, San Diego Gas and Electric is the one that really started to turn off the power after they started a series of fires in 2007. Um, but San Diego is a whole lot different than... Uh, PG&E service territory, way smaller, serving way few people. And the topography there is, um, you know, just much different, much more, um, you know, not diversified, if you will. It's um, a lot of desert and uh, coastal areas. So PG&E is now trying to do that, uh, recognizing that they have to, um, I think. And, but the task in front of them is much harder because they're trying to get to a level of sophistication that would take them years to emulate anyways, but do it across a much broader service area that serves a lot more people and is a lot more diverse. All right, one more question. I think I might be able to answer this one. Um, it says, when covering the fires, what is the team structure like? So, you know, as the person who runs the fire coverage, things have changed so much now that we're in a 24-hour news cycle and that online is our priority, uh, and especially with the size of these, these fires, um, we used to basically be focused on, you know, the one big story a day, and that would come out in the morning, and you'd read about whatever, everything that happened the previous day. But now um, we sometimes post 40 or 50 stories um, in a day, plus photo essays and maps and trackers, so what we do is we send a group of reporters in the field and we start budgeting these stories and we have writers for those stories, editors for those stories, and then back in the office we also have what we call now feed catchers who are dealing with the reporters in the field and acting as sort of their agents in the office, taking feeds from them, writing those stories. Those smaller stories get passed up the line to the rewriters for the print edition and turned into the print product each day, so we might have some days, you know, 80, 90 people working fire coverage. So, thank you so much. That is our second segment. Thanks to Curtis Alexander and J.D. Morris. Um, I'm Damian Bola, Metro Editor. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you. It's time to drink some of that free Chronicle beer over there. <laughs> Damien, that was a lot of fun. That was great. Yeah, that, that was, was great. great. It was much more fun than being in our tiny little podcast studio down the hall that nobody can find. Grab a shirt. If you like the Fifth Admission podcast, if you enjoyed yourself, please tell a friend. Please give us a rating. Um, please spread the word. This is one of the ways that we get our journalism out there. Yes, and let's also thank the Chronicle's awesome marketing department that um, stayed here tonight and um, helped uh, put pull this together. Thank you guys very much. And as always, if you guys have ideas for things that you want to hear on the Fifth Emission podcast, please let me and Damien know or just send us an email or a tweet or a, a, an actual letter in the mail. We check all of it. We want to know. And finally, thank you mostly to King Kaufman, the man who has single-handedly taken our podcast system from nothing to hundreds of thousands of downloads. Thank you, King. And thank you all. Good night. Thank you. And we'll be here if you want to talk afterward. Fifth Emission is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. 
If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe. <laughs>